maybe it's it's best when we start that you talk a little bit about yourself um what you do right now and what you what did, what did led you to the place where you right now and why you choose where you are right now okay so um, currently I'm the director of the Center for Cell and Gene Therapy at Baylor College of Medicine, Houston Methodist Hospital and Texas Children's Hospital. I think you can probably appreciate by my accent that I'm not a native Texan. And um, I started off in New Zealand and it took me a little while to get here. So, so basically I grew up in New Zealand and um, I was always interested in science. Um, I tended to avoid medicine because my parents are both doctors. And since I was a child, everyone said, you're going to do medicine. I was like, no, no I'm not. I'll do something different. But I, I eventually decided probably when I was about 15 or 16 that I did like medicine. So I went to medical school in New Zealand, which is a little bit different um, from the US, probably more like the UK, that you can get into medical school directly from, from school. So, so I did that. And it was a six-year um, medical school. I'd initially thought that I probably wanted to do research in an area like microbiology, but when I did hematology initially, I found that a really fascinating area, I think because of the connection between the bench and the bedside. I was always interested in research and I spent a couple of my summers doing um, New Zealand Medical Research Council electives and research. So I thought this was a nice specialty that allowed you to combine um, bench and bedside. So um, I was in Christchurch, New Zealand by that stage, and I did my initial internal medicine training, then I did hematology. And um, they were starting to do the first bone marrow transplants in, in New Zealand there. So um, I really thought this was a fascinating idea and procedure as a way of treating um, patients with um, non-malignant disorders such as aplastic anemia and leukemia um, by replacing their immune system with the normal donor. So I thought this was an area I would like to learn more about. So when I'd finished, I did my initial Australian and New Zealand qualifications. Um, Claire probably knows these because they're similar to the British ones. There's the Fellowship of the Royal Australasian Physicians and the Fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Pathologists. So there were lots of exams there and they were sort of very time consuming at the time. And of course, now I'm in the US and nobody recognizes them, but that's another matter. So I did my initial exams, then I went to England for what we called in New Zealand OE or overseas experience. And because I wanted to work in transplants, my New Zealand mentor, Mike Baird, had thought about going to Hammersmith or the Royal Free. And the reason I went to the Royal Free was quite simple. It was just that the other trainee ahead of me had gone to Hammersmith. So Mike thought it would be a good idea to get a bit more variation. So I went to the Royal Free. And, um, when I was there, I did clinical initially, and then I did research on transplants for, for three years. And so that was great being there. It was um, a very cosmopolitan place. There were lots of trainees, um, you know, people training in the British system, but people from all over the world too. Some, another New Zealander, Peter Browett, who's now back in Auckland, a few Australians. And um, I really enjoyed that time because you have sort of protected time for research. Um, we still did some clinical, um, we were sort of like honorary lecturers, senior registrars, we cover the transplant program, but I was doing research that was sort of based on improving immune reconstitution post-transplant, and I ended up doing an MD degree from my university back in Otago. 
So um, I'd originally planned to go back to New Zealand and do transplant, but when a faculty position came up about two years after I'd been in England, I actually wasn't ready to go back because I was enjoying doing research and I didn't want to go back to a position which would be mostly hematology with some transplant. So um, I actually turned down a tenured faculty position and stayed in Britain on soft money. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll stay in England and work here. I'm really enjoying myself in England. So to do that, you have to have, or at that stage, you've had to have some US experience or been to America. So I went to Ash um, in 1988 and interviewed at several centers in the US. And I sort of had this Kiwi bias that we worked in the US was the East or the West Coast. So I went and interviewed at Dana-Farber and at Sloan Kettering. And um, I had a sort of potential job at Sloan Kettering and they were just really working out the um, funding for it. But at that stage, um, I'd been working in Malcolm Brenner's lab in England and he and his wife, Cleo Rooney, were moving to St. Jude in Memphis. And Malcolm said to me, oh, you should look at you know, St. Jude too, it's great. And I was sort of like, well, no, I'm going to, to New York. Um, why, why would I want to look at Memphis? But um, one sort of Friday night in England, I got a call from Joe Murrow at St. Jude in Memphis. And he said, well, why don't you come out and at least have a look? And they sort of paid for me to go out for a week, which I thought sounded quite nice because it was a cold winter in um, England. And I got to go and have a look at St. Jude. And they actually did quite a good recruiting job, convincing me of the possibilities there. So in the end, I had an offer from there and I also had an offer from Sloan Kettering and I ended up going to St. Jude. So one of the things about that was I'd never done my American exams. So I had to do those. Um, and, and then they had two of them. They're not the same ones they have now, but you had to do the initial one to work in America at all. Then later you had to do a second one. So I, I did one before I left London and one soon after I arrived in Memphis. Then um, I started out doing research and I'd wanted to do something a little bit different to complement the immunology type research I did at the Royal Free. So I wanted to learn some molecular biology. So I went and worked in Jim Eiley's lab, who was a biochemist who was really working on signal transduction. And I learned different types of research there, but it did sort of show me that what I preferred was more translational research that was relevant to what I was doing clinically. So um, once I had my clinical exams, I was working at St. Jude and um, I got a faculty position there, which was um, slightly interesting because it was pediatrics. And um, I'd done a little bit of pediatrics in New Zealand, but I'd mainly done internal medicine. So I would have primary patients who are a little bit older and let some of the other physicians take the children with immunodeficiencies. But I actually ended up doing almost all the CML because those children tended to be older and it wasn't a disease that the pediatricians were so familiar with. So um, when I was first um, a faculty member there, I was interested in trying to enhance graft versus leukemia. And um, I was looking at trying to develop T cells that recognized um, CML. And I was doing it in a way which was actually probably generating minor antigen specific T cells, but we didn't have all the reagents then that we had now. And so during this time, we started to see a lot of EBV lymphoma in our transplant patients because we were doing um, transplants from alternative donors using T cell depletion to prevent graft versus host disease. 
So um, as we were seeing a lot of EBV lymphoma, I started collaborating um, with Cleo Rooney, who's an EBV virologist. And so we initially asked if we could predict that complication by looking at EBV DNA in the peripheral blood. And we found out we could, that we could see a rise in viral load before the patients developed lymphoma. So then we started to ask, was there anything we could do to intervene to prevent and treat this complication? Because we were seeing it in about 10 to 15% of our um, alternative donor transplants. So about that time, Stan Riddell and Phil Greenberg had published that they were um, developing CMV-specific T-cells to treat CMV. So we thought, well, we can do that for EBV. Um, and in a way, it was easier for EBV because we could make LCLs or lymphoblastoid cell lines um, that have the same pattern and phenotype as do the EBV lymphomas that we were seeing in patients. So we started um, growing them out from the patients because we thought they would be the best ones to use because they'd have the same phenotype as the tumor cells, but that took too long. So we started making them from the donor for high risk patients and then generating T cells under fairly sort of standard um, approaches. So at that stage, um, we needed some funding to test that approach in the clinic and an RFA came out that was quite nice looking at novel therapies. So we put together an application and we also decided to mark the cells to look at their fate and persistence. And we did that with the neomycin resistance gene, which um, was a marker that Malcolm Brenner was using in different studies of hemopoiesis. And so we got an RO1 for me and IH to do that. And the study went very well. Um, giving the donor cells could prevent the complication and then treat it in patients with high-risk disease. So I think what really happened there was I had a project in the lab which was high-risk and which we didn't really have the right reagents for, which wasn't really going anywhere. And I sort of lucked into a better project that ended up working very well. So um, we sort of extended that then to, um, to look at other viruses post-transplant and then eventually to look at tumor-specific T-cells. Um, I was at St. Jude for about eight years. Um, it was a great place to be and I did very well there. I sort of moved through being an assistant and a, an associate professor. But then um, Baylor College of Medicine wanted to recruit Malcolm and indeed his whole team to set up a new center here. And so, um, after coming down for multiple visits and looking at it, we eventually decided to take that opportunity to be in a much bigger medical center. And so I came down here initially um, to direct the adult stem cell transplant program. And then when Malcolm stepped down as director after 15 years, I, I took over as director of the center. And um, obviously during that time, a lot of cell therapies have come into the clinic We've started with virus-specific T-cells, moved the tumor antigen-specific, then to um, CAR T-cells, and now to different types of cells and many different genetic um, manipulations to um, try and improve outcomes. So that's probably a very long answer to your initial question. Yeah, just a one short uh, follow-up, because you saw like quite heterogeneous, I think, um, environments or circumstances oh. in which medicine and research happens. If you could like uh, summarize as well, what, what is the major difference between each step? So if you compare US with New Zealand or US with UK, is, is there something yeah. that, that it's really different or? Yes, in, in lots of different ways. So, so New Zealand, um, 
is a country that has socialized medicine. So basically um, most medical care is paid for by the government. So when I worked in hospitals there as a trainee, my salary was paid by the hospital, but with money that they received from the government. So most sort of major um, procedures like a bone marrow transplant would be done in the public hospitals and paid for by um, the health budget. People would have private insurance, but at that stage it was generally to get total hip replacements done faster in the private sector and so on. I, I think now there is actually more oncology care as in the UK in the private sector, but then anything that would be care of hematologic patients would be in the public hospital system. So I grew up used to that system. Um, in terms of research, there are research funding entities in New Zealand, but the resources are obviously a lot less than say the US. So going to Britain was not such a big change from that. They also had the NHS. So that was as I was used to, probably a little bit more research funding, probably a little bit more in private um, then and probably even more so now. We used to go to the private hospital and help um, our attendings with bone marrows and, and, and various things. And there was actually also a private ward at the Royal Free. So, um, but it wasn't a big difference from New Zealand. I think the big culture shock was going to the US where it's a very different system. Um, I didn't get that initially when I moved because I went to St. Jude, which is a pretty unique institution in that they will bill the patient's insurance, but because of their fundraising arm, LSAC, they raised, then it used to be a couple of hundred million dollars a year. Now it's a lot more to provide all the care that the patients need. So if the patient's care is not covered by insurance, it will be covered by the hospital. And they also had a lot of resources for research. And in general, in the US, there are a lot more funding entities, a lot more funding from the NIH and a lot of other organizations um, you know, some of which have funded me over the years, such as the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, Stand Up to Cancer. So a lot of different um, ways in which you can get funding for research. When I came to Baylor, that was um, my first real experience of being in a purely sort of um, private, more typical US um, hospital system. Um, I work mainly at two hospitals here, Houston Methodist and Texas Children's, which are both private hospitals, a little bit different in their patient populations. Um, Texas Children's, obviously, a lot of the patients are covered by Medicaid. Um, Houston Methodist is a private hospital, then the older patients are covered by Medicare. Um, within our MCI Comprehensive Cancer Centre at Baylor, we also have a VA hospital and then the county hospital, Ben Taub. So, I think a lot of different models of, of, of medical care. Our transplant programs here are, are in private institutions, Methodist and Texas Children's. And because self-therapy is accredited by fact, that's also in those two institutions. We do recognize that Houston is a very diverse population and not all patients therefore have access to cell therapy. So one of the sort of cancer center projects we've got at the moment is trying to bring cell therapy to our county hospital, Ben Taub, and that's kind of a stretch goal, but I hope by the time Abraham finishes his fellowship, it's a reality. <laughs> but yes, no, very, very different systems. And so why am I in the US, not New Zealand? I think it's because the opportunities to be more specialized here and to do sort of cutting edge first in man studies are here. In a way they're not in New Zealand, there's more support for research in many different ways. 
but um, you know, sometimes if I'm on the phone trying to get something that I know should be covered by my patient covered, it can be very frustrating. And I don't do that as much as some of my clinical colleagues do. Thank you so much, Dr. You know, I think the EBMT committee, we do have, uh, you know, members from around the globe. And I think, you know, many of us can relate to the fact that, you know, sometimes you have to move for your educational, you know, mm. uh, opportunities. And, uh, and we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, you, you have mentioned, and I know that you have done a lot of research on virus specific T cells. Mm. particularly for tumor prevention with EBV and TTLD. Uh, and I do think that, you know, one of the greatest features we have with cellular therapy is that we are able to develop a technique, but then, you know, when it comes to targets, we can apply the same technique to multiple targets. Uh, and we saw that with COVID, you know, I think there are multiple researchers and projects that try to use viral specific T cells in COVID-19. Uh, yes, I, actually, I, actually Anne, Anne Lean here developed um, uh, COVID-specific T-cells, and we actually developed a protocol that we opened and, and we did treat some patients, but by the time the protocol was open, um, vaccines were also available, so we were not seeing so many severe patients. So where do you think the use of BSP is heading to with the amount of therapies we have now and the vaccines, as you said, you know, uh, 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 how do you think that we will be using virus-specific T-cells in the future? Um, do you mean broadly or for COVID in particular? I think uh, particularly for hematologic and in hematology. Probably. Yeah. So, so, so I think obviously there are scenarios like EBV lymphoma, um, where if they're immunogenic, they respond very well to virus-specific T-cells. So um, there's one company, Atara, that has got some late phase studies, which um, may lead to licensure in the next few years. Um, for the BSTs post-transplant, there was a Baylor spin-out company. So obviously I've got a COI there, but Alavir, they're also developing a lot of virus-specific T cells from um, banked allogeneic donors for therapy. So I think those trials are also ongoing. Um, COVID, I think it's such a rapidly moving field. Um, obviously, when the vaccines first came in, they looked like they were going to cover everything. Um, there's been a lot of variants, so the vaccines are a little bit chasing the variants at present. So there might be a potential role for T cells, which recognize a lot of different specificities, um, in addition to some of the, the um, targets of, of different vaccines. So the, there could potentially be a role there. I think it's a little bit early to know though. Uh, shifting gears to, uh, you know, CAR T cells, which currently at least, you know, we have four FDA approved products for B cell malignancies. We have two for multiple myeloma. Uh, what do you think the future uh, of CAR T cells and, you know, myeloid malignancies and T cell malignancies? Do you think we will have the same success with, uh, uh, you know, with CAR T cells and those malignancies? Uh, you know, like what we had with B-cell malignancies? Well, well, I think the obvious challenge with those two malignancies is that um, you're going to get off-target effects, and, and you get that with CD19, obviously, but depleting your normal B-cells is an acceptable side effect if you're also eradicating your ALL or your lymphoma. 
And most patients have, will have these aplasia for a while and then recover, and they can be supported through that because it's the same complication that we get with rituximab. The problem um, with the same approach um, targeting common myeloid or T-cell antigens is that you can't afford to deplete your myeloid or T-cells long-term. So most of the studies um, targeting myeloid or T-cell antigens have used them as a transplant enabling process. So you give the um, CAR T-cells targeting a myeloid antigen such as CD123 or a T-cell antigen such as CD5, CD7, then rescue the patient with an allogeneic transplant. And, and there have been responses. There are some of the myeloid CAR T-cell studies that have reported responses. Um, some of my colleagues here, Max Lamonkin, um, Lakisa Hill and Rain Rouse, are running a study um, targeting CD5 and more recently CD7, where they've seen responses that have enabled patients to go to transplant. Um, so I, I think there are possibilities there. Um, you know, another possibility would be, could you have a short-term effect and turn it off so you could get recovery of um, normal T-cells, but that would be reliant on eradicating the malignant T-cells and not the normal T-cells. So there, there, there's some challenges there. There are other groups, um, Martin Pulet is looking at a target that's only expressed on a subset of T-cells. So then you can target your um, T-cell towards the antigen expressed on the tumor cells and preserve other T cells, which will hopefully be able to reconstitute your other antiviral immunity. So I think there's a lot of strategies being looked at there, but it's a more challenging scenario. And it's probably along similar lines, especially when we're considering things which are more challenging. But what are your thoughts about um, cellular therapies for solid malignancies? Yes, again, there are different challenges there because firstly, there are not um, antigens like CD19 that's expressed on the tumor cells and only a subset of normal cells, which um, will not be problematic, but at least there are very rare antigens like that. There are a few candidate ones that may only be expressed on, um, on, on germ cells. So in most cases, you've got the risk of off-target effects, and you've also got the fact that solid tumors tend to have more tumor evasion mechanisms so it's unlikely that a car alone will um, provide enough activity. You're going to need other strategies to ensure you get signal two and three correctly. So a lot of approaches are now looking at putting in other genes, such as a dominant negative TGF-beta, to overcome tumor evasion mechanisms, cytokines such as IL-15, IL-12. Um, so I think it's going to be a combination approach. Um, some of our investigators are also looking at virotherapy in combination with CAR T cells. So I, I think that there are potential solutions eventually, but it's going to take a little bit longer to evaluate which are the most promising strategies. Mm, and you already alluded to it. And I think that's um, with now, with uh, I think at least for me in the last, let's say, three to two years, um, what you tell us about is like there are these hypotheses options and like this investigative nature so we can like engineer t-cells here engineer there uh, think about how to improve them and then there is the thing okay this is a very specialized treatment a very maybe cost intensive treatment as, as we see now and also a manufacturing um challenge let's call it like that um especially what we see here in, in europe now with with myeloma it's, it's 
You, we see the same in the US. We you, have... you can only call that disaster because the patients have these like hopes and then they wait for one and a half months or two months to get it. Um, um, one or two months is good. We have a very long waiting list. And yeah. Our most okay. difficult meeting at present is lining up the myeloma patients for the slots that we get. Yeah. And you already um, alluded to that, that you try to, to improve the access. But if, 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 you, if you think about it, how should we approach this in a more systematic way? Or should every hospital try to uh, build their own network and try to improve their access scheme? Or what do you think? How can we uh, accomplish? So I, I think there's several options. Firstly, I think there's a lot of people looking at optimizing manufacturing. So some of the companies are now refining their manufacturing so that they can have the product ready in potentially one to two days for the manufacturing, although the testing might take a bit longer. So anything that can improve the um, effectiveness of manufacturing for the autologous products could improve access. Um, there's obviously a lot of companies and academic investigators looking at bank genetic cells. And um, if they pan out, obviously eventually the cost of goods should be a lot lower, which would improve access. In terms of commercial versus academic cars, I think most academic institutions um, could manufacture cars for a lot less than the current um, commercial prices, but that's not um, in the US an FDA approved product. So um, it would not be then covered by insurance in the same way that the commercial product is. And also you would have to show that you had an equivalent activity, which particularly for something like a CD19 car in um, pediatric ALL, where you've got a response rate over 85% and even the five-year disease-free survival above 40%, you don't want to potentially give such a patient a product that doesn't have the same efficacy. Um, I think in other countries though, um, you know, manufacturing at hospitals, um, as we do for bone marrow products, as the process gets simpler, may be an option. And you could envisage that looking um, like lots of different ways. Milteni have obviously done it in Russia and, and other places by providing all the reagents and then an SOP and I think several centers have shown they're able to follow that and produce a product at um, lower cost. The question though becomes, um, if this is not a product approved by the regulatory agencies because you don't have the late phase trials, then is it the right thing to do for a patient who might have insurance? Mm. Um, obviously it's a different sort of um, thought process if you're in a more resource restricted country and you can set up to provide the cells for a lower cost. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues there. Mm. And structure-wise, you, you mentioned it uh, quite shortly, but can you can you explain it, what, what you do to increase um, the access? You mentioned that you uh, like support a hospital, or I, I didn't get that. Well, no, what we're looking at is at, at present um, in the US, generally hospitals have to be fact accredited to um, do either commercial IECs or to undertake trials. Um, so for us, this means that we can do such studies at our private hospitals, but we also have a county hospital that's affiliated with our medical school where we have lots of patients who potentially benefit. So what we're looking at is getting fact accreditation for that hospital so that we can at least 
bring in commercial studies and have them available as an option for patients there and some of our own investigator initiatives. Right. And I, I think there are several sort of reasons to do that. Firstly, because there's a lot of patients there who have benefit from access who are young. And I think everyone's becoming increasingly aware that many of the pivotal studies of these therapies have not been done on a population that represents the whole US population or even international populations. And it's important to do that so you know that the outcomes are the same in, in different groups. Yeah. I can just imagine how challenging it would be to use you know, those therapies in low to middle class income countries. You know, it's, uh, we yes. have for sure an issue with access in the US and there is you know, that uh, discrepancy between you know, based on your insurance, socioeconomical status and stuff, but you know, I think the challenges would be much also harder you know, when, when we try to use those uh, therapies in uh, developing countries, uh, in just developed countries. Uh, uh, Dr. Hesab, I wanna ask you about transplant. You know, so we have you know, more and more CAR T cells being uh, approved. Uh, you know, initially was you know, for relapsed refractory fourth or fifth line, but now you know, okay. we are moving to using them as a second line, for, for example, you know, uh, uh, B cell, uh, lymphomas and not much lymphomas. Uh, I, I wonder what, how do you see the future of transplant? Uh, and, and what future research or, you know, what future areas you think transplant research should target to optimize, you know, transplant and make it uh, uh, less toxic and more uh, beneficial for patients? Yeah, so I, I think it's obviously um, interesting that the CAR T cells are moving earlier. That's happening, um, obviously, in the trials of adult lymphoma. It's also happening in pediatric ALL, where the patients who take longer with their initial remission induction, there's now some consolidation with CAR Ts in one of the frontline studies. So I, I think they will move up, um, up earlier. Um, you know, there, we obviously, as most programs, are having lots of discussions about what are the scenarios in which we will um, do a CAR T infusion instead of an autologous transplant. And at present, I think it's a little bit limited by the studies that are reported, but I'm sure that will expand with time. And it's going to be important to get long-term outcomes um, to compare the two approaches, which is why I think it's going to be important to report all these patients to the registries. One might hope that maybe if CAR T cells provide long-term control, there'll also be a lower risk of secondary malignancies and other complications that you see with autologous transplant, but we don't, we don't know that yet. So I think there's a lot of long-term follow-up that's going to be very important. Um, in general with transplant, I think the other big area that we were talking about with actually quite a lot of people at the Vale meeting is some of the data on antibody-mediated conditioning, which I think is very important for transplanting children with um, immune deficiency and non-malignant disease. And there were actually some nice posters by some of the investigators from Stanford reporting various strategies. But I think the other place where this could be a big um, advantage is in the gene therapy strategies, particularly for hemoglobinopathies, if you could avoid giving um, conditioning with busulfan and given antibody conditioning, that could also potentially be beneficial there. So I think that's an area of research and transplant, trying to take advantage of antibodies to make conditioning regimens less toxic. That, um, could make a big impact on the field.
think the experience you've had having worked in so many different places, adults, paediatrics, translational research, clinical, is quite unique and very rare amongst people who are like working in haematology and transplants. I think you'd be in a good position or better than most people to give advice for trainees and mentees working in the field of transplant or who have specific research interests. What sort of advice would you give to people? Um, I, I generally sort of say be flexible on what you want to do. I think if you'd asked me in New Zealand where I would have ended up, it certainly wouldn't have been in Houston, Texas. Um, I, I was interested in gene therapy, I'll say. When I wrote my grant application to get funding to go to England, I did talk about wanting to do gene therapy. So I, I did kind of predict that, but I think I wouldn't have predicted that I would have never gone back to New Zealand and would have stayed here. And that happened really partly because of serendipity and because of opportunities I got. Um, and I will also say that I've done different things um, at different stages based on what's um, possible with um, you know, new technology and, and new strategies. So I would say be very open to um, what might be an interesting area to go into to improve outcomes to patients. Um, I would say learn bioinformatics. That's one thing I haven't done that I, that I think is a deficiency. Um, but I, I would say be very open to sort of new advances and um, where, where you might end up. And you said you were quite early on focused on science. But um, for I think for many, we had in, in Vail, we had this uh, big discussion and everyone was quite intrigued by it, um, how different is it was for, for certain trainees, the difference between clinical work and science. Because mm -hmm. like at least in Germany, it's um, maybe in the US, it's a bit more easier because if, if you work in a university hospital, you have maybe a bit more flexibility to really focus on science. But at least in Europe, it's always a big dilemma. Uh, you need to work hard. And then after eight hours, you can go in the lab if you want. Um, we welcome every researcher, but first of all, work hard. Um, yeah. what, what would you say, um, how, what is your advice for, for people who are not really sure what they want to do if they want to do the big step to like focus on research. And because I think for many days, they think clinic is my safe harbor. I can do that all, always, but research is just. Yes, I, I, I think obviously you've got to, I mean, the other advice is do what you're passionate about, which I think is a given. So if you really love taking care of patients, um, there's ways that you can do clinical research and education and not everyone has to, has to go into the laboratory. But I think if you think you might enjoy the laboratory, it's good to try and have some time to do it during um, your fellowship or your registrar years, um, if you have that opportunity. And, you know, I've had trainees who've gone into the laboratory um, and they found they loved it and they've ended up staying there. I've had other people who've gone in and realized how much they like clinical medicine or other people who've gone in and who've used it to be really effective collaborators who can work with um, laboratory scientists and help in the translation because they understand the correlative studies. So I think not everyone who goes into the laboratory is going to end up having a long-term presence there, but it can help you as a clinical investigator, or it can help you learn that what you like is looking after patients and um, you want to be a full-time clinician or a clinician educator. 
So I think um, if you have any suggestion that you might want to have at least some component of laboratory science in your career, try and find some protector time during your fellowship to go into a laboratory and find out if you do or don't. Right. Some people know from you know, having done laboratory work during their undergraduate years or during summer. Hmm. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Heslop. If the others don't have any other question, um, we would like to thank you for your time, uh, okay. for coming on. And um, yeah, wish you a good day. Okay, well, hopefully I'll get to, well, I'll see Ibrahim obviously all the time, but hopefully I'll get to see you both at meetings in the future. Let's hope, yeah. Thank you very much and have a good day. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>